Good morning, beloved. Oh, that, was, that was about a five. Uh, but it's good to be with you all today. We're going to continue our, our uh, sermon series uh, in Luke's gospel. Uh, we're in chapter 9 as we read verses 1 through 17 today. And in the first six verses of this chapter, Jesus is recorded as sending his disciples on a mission trip of sorts, which reminds me of a trip that the Stricklands took one time. So the scene, if I can paint the picture for you, is Dallas, Texas, Love Field Airport, and the five of us, including a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a five-month-old, just had two fairly uneventful flights to make it there. And as we were getting off the plane, walking to the baggage claim, my wife looked at me and she says, that wasn't so bad. And I was like, shh. I was like, you can't speak of it, you know, or it'll put it in jeopardy. You know, that's the, the athlete in me, you know, coming, coming out. But um, some of you might know exactly what I'm talking about. When traveling with young kids, there are so many variables that can leave, hey, that wasn't too bad, lead it to chaos very quickly. But after we got our bags, we decided that I would go solo to save our family some steps. I get the rental car. And um, in my mind's eye, I would return like a hero with a chariot to carry my family away. And obviously, that's not what would happen, because that's why the story is worth telling. And so uh, when I returned to the baggage claim, my family wasn't there. Uh, And what happened is that the unthinkable occurred. A recently potty trained child declared a state of emergency. They said, I have to go. And so uh, my wife, who was there by herself, uh, with the bags and the car seats and the strollers and the children who are incapable of being trusted to walk through an airport, um, she decided to make the uh, courageous decision to walk about 100 yards to the nearest restroom, and we actually have a picture of of that scene. So, okay, so (laughs) in the double stroller, you have the child who declared the emergency. She's not happy. You have Trey who is like, can't even sit up straight because I had him in like a baby carrier. He's just like a a tub of like chunk, you know, just (laughs) tipping over because Kendra, who's pushing the mountain of bags, was sitting there and Stephanie's just taking pictures. So uh, that's that's that. So so back to the, uh, the text we have today. In my mind's eye, this is kind of what Jesus was trying to avoid with his disciples, having so many material possessions with you on a journey that it just causes problems. (laughs) Or he wanted his disciples to not appear in all those bags like they were those teachers who would travel village to village, picking up things and taking things from the people that they were teaching. But most importantly, he wanted his disciples to know they had to trust in God for everything they needed. This trust was culminated in the feeding of 5,000 men at the end of today's text. Uh, And before we go into the text, by the way, if you're wondering how the Dallas sort of situation ended, uh, it was a false alarm. (laughs) The the, the words, I thought I had to go, haunt every parent. But anyway, so um, no way to recover from that, so we'll just read the Bible. So verses 1 to 6 is about the mission trip that Jesus sent them on. So here we go. So, and he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have, do not have two tunics. 
And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Verse 5. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing uh, everywhere. So the disciples in Jesus had been together for some time now. And then Jesus is getting ready to set his sights on Jerusalem with the cross looming in the background because he knew it was close to the time when he was going to depart from his disciples. And so what he said is like, you know, I need to get these guys some, like an internship, like some on-the-job training. So he said to them, what I'm going to do is send you out, proclaim the kingdom, and you're going to be able to heal people on this trip. And so Jesus knows that you learn the best by doing so I was talking to, to Nathaniel Parker on, um, I haven't seen the Parkers today, but anyway, I was talking to Nathaniel on Easter, and he was telling me about the, the situation with his kids where they would, you know, for years they had watched him drive, and then they would take basically subconscious notes about him driving, and then now he's in a season where he is driving or riding in the passenger seat along with his kids now that they're driving, and eventually he's going to send them off as drivers in their own right. Likewise, if you are a football player and, uh, you know, you don't learn how to play football by, you know, writing X's and O's on a chalkboard, you got to put on some pads and get on the field. Or if you want to be a seamstress, you don't just become a renowned designer by watching YouTube videos. You got to get some thread and a needle. Learning comes by doing. And so in the disciples doing, there's four insights from these first six verses I think are very helpful for us. The first one is regarding power and authority. So verses one and two, read this way again. And he called to the twelve, he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And so um, it's not by mistake that the text says they needed both power and authority. They're both there and both necessary. And so for me, the, you know, I have the ability to run. But if I ran across the White House lawn this morning, I shudder at the thought what the Secret Service would do to me because I have the ability to run, but I don't have the authority to be there. And so in a moment of confession, I really do envy the power and authority that God gave his disciples. Pastor Manny and I were talking about this on Friday. You know, I just think, man, if we had the ability to do that stuff, our witness would be ridiculous. Just think about it. Our world is full of chaos, full of static noises, but then there's these people who are healing people and casting out craziness from people. I mean, I think our families and friends and coworkers and neighbors, they would start paying attention. I'm like, God, why can't we still do that? But in God's sovereignty... He didn't send out his, his disciples uh, or long-term like us as Christians with that kind of power. Scripture teaches us that we have an even greater power. So, but for me, I have to genuinely fight to believe this. And so uh, in John 14, 12, it says this. Truly, truly, which, you know, Jesus is not lying now. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do. Isn't that crazy? And then he sort of doubles down on it and says, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So I'm like, hold up. 
So the disciples, verse 1 in our text, they are sent out to uh, cast, uh, cast out demons and cure diseases, and we can top that? And I, I literally had to sit there and think, and maybe this is just for us, Manny, but, um, you know, Pastor Manny and I, we were just trying to figure all this out. And so let's just dig into this for a second. And a lot of it hinges on, in John 14, 12, that last clause when he says, because I'm going to the Father. And so Jesus' resurrection clarifies his earthly action and teaching. So if you think about the disciples, they were asking lots of questions, even though they were walking alongside Jesus throughout his entire ministry. I mean, they're, they were they're like, you know, hey, John, like what? You know, hey, Peter, what? I mean, they're just trying to like, hey, I asked him a question. You know, what he, you know what he meant by that? I don't know. And so they were still having ongoing questions, even though they were in the thick of everything. But now we have the privileged position at looking back at the ultimate miracle, the resurrection of the Messiah, and now it makes everything make sense. And so in short, the greater works that we're called to do requires Jesus to be seen as the resurrected Lord of all. That's where somebody says, amen. <laughs> because Jesus is no longer seen as a lunatic with his band of nomadic disciples, you know, breaking the, mo the Mosaic law. He's no longer seen as, or being mistaken as just a poor man who sleeps in tents on the edge of town. He is unmistakably the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And then the number of Christ followers has literally mushroomed because of that fact. As Christians, we have power not just to heal people for them to die later. We have been given the authority to beckon people into a kingdom that has no end where healings are no longer needed, where death has no more sting, greater works than these will we be able to do with his help. And so, there you go, Manny. So power and authority. <laughs> so verses 3 and 4, uh, no supplies. So it says this in verses 3 and 4, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. And so, for you parents out there, if Pastor Kilo said, hey, we're going to take a mission trip to, like, Madagascar or something like that, we're not going to take any extra clothes, no communication devices, no GPSs, and we don't have really a, sol a solid place to stay, but we're going to go. Would you let your teenager go? I mean, I wouldn't go, but, I mean, would you let your teenager go? And so, Jesus... He sends his disciples out with a calculated deficit. And they're painfully aware that they have to be dependent on, not themselves, but Jesus. Lots of unanswered questions. They have material shortfall. And the list goes on and on. But the question is, are they going to be able to do what God has called them to do? And the answer is yes. And so the, this raises for me a question. What man-made thing do I depend on in order to serve him? Am I dependent on anything more than God himself to do his work? And if so, what is that? Many of us are waiting for that question to be answered before we can, you know, uh, get in the game of serving the Lord Jesus and making his name known. But the reality is he's given you the ability to do far greater things than we can imagine if we just trust him. So the third insight is regarding moving on, verses 5 and six. He says, and uh, everywhere uh, they do not, and uh, wherever they do not receive you, 
when you leave that place, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So there was an ancient Jewish practice that when the people, they would literally shake the dust off their feet when leaving a pagan land. This is symbolic of them not wanting anything of that pagan worship or their false gods to be on them when they departed. But for me, as I was reading this text over and over again, I was thinking, does God want me to shake off the dust of my feet and not share the gospel with people anymore? And the question that I, the way I thought about this was in two ways. Well, the first is distinguishing between those who we encounter as we are in a limited amount of time. Those who we are on a mission trip and we meet folks, we're passing through somewhere, we're sitting on an airplane, but this also is in contrast to those we encounter on a regular basis and have more long-term engagement with, like our coworkers and family and neighbors. And so the first group are those that we might have to shake the dust off our feet from, but the second group are those that we ought to long-suffer with. We have more time to uh, show and demonstrate the words and deeds of Christ to them. And the trick is, is that we have to have wisdom because we have both kinds of relationships in our life. Those that we're going to be passing through and we're giving testimony to Christ as we go. And then those who we're going to be linking arms with. The family we see on holiday after holiday. And that's the only time you see them. Maybe because that's your choosing to do so. But, but the case is, is that you're going to continue to see them, and your witness ought to persist long term. And so as we are sort of rounding out these first six verses, everything about this mission screams that the disciples ought to depend on God. Their authority comes from him. Their needs will be supplied by him. And there, there is no personal gain that they should be sought after as they go. So now we have the disciples, they're off on their mission trip, and then now Herod shows up. Verses 7 to 9, it says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was transpiring or happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And so Herod Herod said, "Uh, John I beheaded, but who is, uh, who, is, who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So I guess Herod even heard the word on the street that there was a man healing folk. And he wanted to go see what was going on. And I'm sure his curiosity drove him. And even biblical scholars say that, you know, that he was probably uh, had some measure of guilt because he's the one who uh, beheaded John. And he was kind of fearful of his return. And hey, I don't blame him. If I beheaded a guy and people said his spirit was roaming around, I knew I'd be on his short list because he was going to come see me. And so I was like, I need to go figure out what's going on before he gets to me. And so whatever his reasons, though, whatever his reasons for being curious, he was asking the right question. The question that the disciples asked as they were in the boat in chapter 8 that we studied two weeks ago, as Jesus calmed the storm and the storm listened to him, they said, who is this man? Who is this man? This is the right question, the one we all have to answer and help others to answer rightly. Herod found Jesus fascinating, but he, when he went to meet him uh, and to know more about him, but as we've insisted throughout the Luke study so far, curiosity about Jesus doesn't get you into the kingdom. 
Wanting to see signs and wonders does not make you a child of God. It is the fact that we don't just have to be curious to be a Christ follower. It takes repentance of sin and faith that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners of which you and I are one. That is how you enter into the kingdom of God. And so verses uh, 10 and 11 now. So Herod's on the scene now, and then the, the, the disciples, they were gone, and now they come back. And this is Jesus and his disciples now, they kind of go on like a little ministry retreat to sort of debrief what happened when they were gone on that trip. And so verse 10, it says, On their return, the apostles told him, being Jesus, all that they had done. And he took them to withdraw and withdrew apart to uh, a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So two things are going on here. Jesus got reports from his disciples, and the crowds found Jesus and his disciples as they were retreating. And so there's some biblical commentators and preachers who are insisting that the disciples were bragging about all that they did with the power and authority that God had given them. But, you know, for me in my reading, as uh, this may or may not have been the case, they could have just been given just basic reports of what had transpired. But in either case, this scene, them stealing away, and then folks coming to follow them, is really what began to set up this huge miracle at the end of our text. And so, somehow, these people found Jesus and his disciples. But instead of casting them away, or as I would do, I would just try to shake them, like maybe going through like a quick mountain pass, Jesus had compassion on them. He saw them in their needs, and he healed them, and uh, those who were in need, and he taught about the kingdom. And I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but Jesus is like a band who tours on a single song. Whenever crowds emerge, whenever he has a captive audience, what does he talk about? The kingdom. Always talking about his kingdom. And so, and he was trying to insist that his kingdom was not to overthrow the oppressive Roman government. He was trying to teach him that he was not trying to uh, make everyone wealthy in the moment. He was insisting that we all have a bigger problem. And his message was that our sins keep us from the Father, which resulted in being eternally separated from God. So Jesus was going to establish a, a kingdom that was literally out of this world. And when people led on that he should overthrow Rome, Jesus insisted that they were thinking too small. Jesus had come to establish a kingdom that is going to end all kingdoms. And yes, Jesus certainly cared about their earthly needs. After all, he's getting ready to feed 5,000 hungry people. He had compassion on them, as Mark chapter 6 says in its account of this. But the forthcoming miracle in the last verses of this text is not just a temporary feeling of bellies. It's a sign that there is going to come a kingdom reality where there is no hunger, where there is no oppression, where in the sin that causes them will have no place there. That's what Jesus is trying to do. Something so much grander. And so now the crowd is here, and let's check them out real quick in verses 12 and 13. And now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came, to, uh, came and said to him, being Jesus, uh, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and, provi- and, to get, and get provisions. 
for we are, or for we are here in a desolate place. And he, being Jesus, said to them, you give them something to eat. He said, <laughs> so if y'all caught it, they were in verse 12 telling Jesus what to do. They said, oh, we got some ministry experience now. Uh, look, 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 look it back up 12. He says, now the day came, wearing away. And then they said to Jesus, telling them what to do, send them away. We ain't got nothing for them. And then Jesus was like, you feed them. And then they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless, uh, unless we are, are to go and buy food for all these people. And so the disciples, they thought they, they knew what was going on now. They got some power and authority. That they thought they could tell the rabbi what to do. <laughs> and he said, we got to send him away. He was like, mm-mm, make it happen. And so biblical scholars, that's, that's what they said, the biblical scholars, they said, make it happen. So uh, <laughs> biblical scholars who interpret verse 10 as the disciples being a little bit braggadocious about what they were doing, they see their boldness with Jesus as being a continuation of that boastful spirit. But the disciples, uh, after Jesus was like, nope, you do something, they began taking stock of what they had. And they turned, to, uh, they turned up with a meager handful of loaves and a few fish. And in John's gospel, we're given the detail that these five loaves and these fish were from a little boy's lunch. You read that in John uh, chapter 6, verse 9. And the fact that it was a little boy's lunch was telling. That it was so meager that it was carried by a little boy. I mean, imagine his mom gave him this lunch, and he's just holding it there. And how in the world is that little lunch going to feed 5,000 men and all that accompanied them? And so in those days, they would uh, use some shorthand, and they would count men because they represented households. And so you would have men, women, and children out there to see Jesus. And, you know, those who are scholars think there's about 15,000 people there. But if we go with the Mongo Day ratios, there could have been anywhere up to 25,000 people there uh, with women and children. Uh, and if we're honest, uh, we are much like the disciples. We've been able to see God's faithfulness time and time again, yet still, when we come to a difficult situation, we rely on ourselves. You see that? They begin to go to, they, they had a whiteboard session when Jesus said, you feed them, and they tried to go out and count the stuff and see what they had, they started to empty their pockets on the table, and they're like, okay, this is all we got. What can we do? We got to send these people away, Jesus. Do you understand what's going on here, that we don't have the ability to do this? And he was like, they forgot who they're talking to. Because this is, this is our, the natural state of us, Christ followers. I mean, for the disciples themselves, they just saw Jesus calm a storm in chapter 8. They just saw Jesus cast a demon out of a man. They saw Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. And then when it comes down to a seemingly impossible situation, they look to themselves. They try to look inward for strength. They try to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. They try to muster up enough to fix it. And the whole time Jesus is like, I'm standing here. I'm a resource too. I want to do this through you, but you have to let me do it. And so this is, this is what happens in the, in the miracle that happens in uh, verses uh, 14 to 17. It says that for there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and he had them all sit down. 
And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. (laughs) Isn't this crazy? Jesus is at work again. And so this is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that is chronicled in all four Gospels. And whenever we see a, a, a miracle happen, what occurs is that the response or the reaction of the crowd is usually what the Bible, uh, the uh, Gospel authors sort of key in on. They didn't give the, the, the uh, crowd's response in this. They focused on the disciples, which lets us know that this lesson connects back to verse 4 when Jesus told them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. This is the lesson. God provides. God provides. When you're sitting there, you don't know what to do in your own strength. When you've exhausted all of the resources that you can see, you have to understand God provides. When you, when you say, you know, I'm too, I'm too broken to do anything for Jesus. I'm just a mere person who can't do anything for the Lord. I'm just trying to get by today. I'm limping along in life. God provides. There is a God who is looking after you, who is with you in all that you do. We can't lose sight of this. Brothers and sisters, this is us. God is providing for us time and time again, but sometimes we're so busy looking in our pockets, we don't let him give, we don't give him a chance. God is there with us. So the question I have to ask for us, because this is ultimately a lesson about Jesus sending out his disciples and them ministering as he goes away, we have to ask the question, who fed these people? The disciples or Jesus? The answer is yes. Jesus said, you give them something to eat, and they actually did deliver, but only with God's help. They were the ones that gave the food out. You guys see that in the text? They were the ones who were, who were handing it out to them. They fed them, but only with the help of the Lord. And so after Jesus goes back to the Heavenly Father, the good news of salvation, the good grace that God gives us only comes through his disciples. This story was intended to demonstrate just how inadequate the disciples are, but how adequate our God is. And this is good news. They're only going to get the Lord Jesus through his people. Just imagine this. You're a little boy. You show up with the lunch that your mom packed you. A vast crowd of people, they were hungry. And the disciples of the miracle-working man were scouring the crowd, trying to find something anything to feed these people and you're gripping your little lunch that your mom gave you and you can imagine how the small boy disqualified himself from thinking that his he and his little lunch would be any good to a crowd that size and just think about us now you and I often are overwhelmed by the needs of the moment we feel like we have nothing to offer We're like this little boy standing in the field with five loaves and two fishes even the disciples passed them by but Jesus didn't Jesus said, bring that to me. You know, bring me the little you have, and I will make it enough. I know you. I made you. My spirit dwells within you, and I can do what needs to be done if you give me a chance to work. You might be overwhelmed by the brokenness of the world that we live in. 
You might say, I'm not smart. I'm not eloquent. I don't have that kind of resources. I'm not someone that anybody finds compelling, but we forget that we serve the God who used stuttering Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. We have to remember that we serve a God who used Gideon and gave victory to his under-resourced army in Judges chapter 6. We also have to remember that we serve a God who used uh, Jesse's youngest son to have victory over the giant Goliath. We also serve a God who used teenage Daniel in Babylon to put Nebuchadnezzar in his place, who also used this ragtag group of fishermen and sinners to start a global movement. This is the God we serve. This is the God that we are making much of. Amen. (laughs) As an aside... This is not just a Bible story. This is real life. These are historical events of God moving amongst people just like us. This little boy with his loaves and fishes, I mean, how how under-resourced and how under-prepared did he feel to be used by God in this moment? Christian, you have a gift given to you by the Holy Spirit. Read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 through 7 tonight. But the question is, will you allow Jesus to multiply the little you have to make much of himself? Or will you bury your head in the sand, you know, assuming that you are inadequate? The answer is yes, you are inadequate. But he is the one who makes up the lack within you, so he gets the glory. So as we look to verse 7 again, this is significant. And it says, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, uh, 12 baskets of broken pieces. And so uh, they began with so little, but God provided. And there was so much left over. There was 12 bags. And the number 12 is not lost on people who are students of the Bible. Because they had 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. So Jesus is just showing off his meticulous providence over the situation at hand. He was like, look, I'm even going to be fancy here. Ha <laughs> ha, 12. This is not a mistake. The Lord is doing his thing. The Bible student also can't overlook the fact that there is bread in this story. The bread is real in this story. In the Old Testament, God provided bread for his people as they were wandering in the wilderness. And in this story, they're in another desolate place, another field, and Jesus provides enough for leftovers in this story. But most significantly, these Old Testament and New Testament stories point out to a greater miracle of Jesus himself being the bread of life that if we eat it, we will never hunger again. In John 6, uh, 35, it quotes Jesus, and he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's somebody here today who's carrying a weight that you cannot bear. There's somebody here today that is dying under the weight of their own sin. There's brokenness all around you, and you're trying to fish your way out of it, scrapping and scraping, trying to do anything and everything under your power, trying to get out of it. You feel guilty for the way that you've broken the heart of God and rebelled against him with your actions. And today, we're here to say that there is the bread that you can eat, the bread of life. The body of Christ has been broken for you. And so if you're in that place today, 
If you feel like you're trying to please God but don't have strength to do so, there was a man named Jesus who took all the sin that is plaguing you on his back along with this cross up the hill, died on the tree. But he didn't just die like everybody else. He rose from the dead. He was victorious over those struggles, over that sin for you and for me if you will have him. And today I plead with you. If you don't know Christ is Lord, if you don't know the Jesus that makes a way out of no way, invite him into your life today. He will have you. And for the Christian, have you trusted God to provide for you as you serve him? Or are you steady trying to you know, figure out, oh, I don't have gifts like that person. I don't have gifts like this person. Well, as soon as God gives me this, I'll do it. Well, I need it. No! Five loaves, two fishes. 15,000 people, the calculated deficit that the disciples had, all pointing to the fact that they and us need to depend on God. If we step out in faith, we, God's people, are his plan A. Go ye therefore in all the nations. We have people going to the ends of the earth. We have people going on mission here in the triangle, planting churches, going into your workplaces and your neighborhoods. But you might think, you know, I, I, I can't, I don't have enough or what it takes to, to be a light of the gospel in that relationship. Yes, you do. Greater is he, isn't he? Well, there's a situation that's going on. I don't know, I don't know how to engage that. Well, greater is he that, who's in us. He will make us enough. And so today, I just want to pray over us as we go, because there's so much for us to do, so much brokenness out there, and we ought to demonstrate and proclaim the riches of this kingdom that Jesus died and rose to establish that will one day be a reality. Let's get everybody there. Let's witness to, to that place. Let's do everything, even as we are doing good and helpful things here and now, as we ought to do, loving our neighbor, we ought to be proclaiming the reality that there is a kingdom that's coming. And everything we do is in light of that, pointing to that. And by God's grace, we'll take uh, the Lord Jesus up on his offer to be enough for us, to be the lack in us as we do it. Please pray with me. Father, we, we know that we are those who are inadequate for the task that you've given us. And it seems laughable that you would send this ragtag group out here to be the Green Berets in a culture that seems so anti-Jesus. But God, it's because of that that you signed so brightly. Make up what we don't have. God, we give you all that we need, relationally, physically, God, even use us to demonstrate and proclaim the good news of your kingdom's coming. God, you're so good. And I pray that we would uh, invite people to experience your goodness and your kindness and your grace in ways that they never have before. And we will be very quick to give you the glory in your name. Amen.